This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. On today's episode, we talk with Dr. Akihiro Seta, Director of Health and WHO Special Representative to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian for Palestine Refugees. He joins us today thanks to our Global Health Programs Unit and its Director Robin Petzold, as well as the University of Iowa Lecture Committee. Uh, welcome to the Shortcode, Dr. Seda. Thank you very much. Uh, and say hello to today's co-hosts, starting with MD-PhD student Aline Sanduk. Hello. M2 Abby Fife is back. Hey. MD-PhD student Osama Abu Halawa joins us today. What's up? And our, inter- uh, and our intern, Joel Horn, who has a strong interest of his own in global health, joins us on the mic. Hi, Joel. Hi. <laughs> Dr. Seda, we know from previous episodes and discussions that Palestine is a, a challenging environment for healthcare delivery. Um, to say the least. We've spoken uh, with Steve Sosby, President and CEO of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, mm. uh, and Dr. Mamdou Akar, a founder of the Mandela Institute for Political Prisoners and the Independent Commission for Human Rights. But I wonder if we can start today with your overview of refugees, of the refugees' health challenges um, in Palestine and what the United Nations Relief and Works Agency does to support uh, refugees in Palestine. Yeah, so Palestinian refugees uh, are probably the longest refugee foot in the current contemporary world, starting from 1948. And uh, probably the largest, uh, probably, there's no need to compare the size of our refugees, and it's a shame to compare, but it's as big as Syrian refugees. So it, uh, it's mean they have been in the refugee food the last 72 years, and they are now almost 5.5 million registered refugees, which we provide the services. So. That's a very historical and issue, and it it uh, clearly means that the international community failed to solve this refugee problem in the last 72 years, and uh, and uh, I don't think we should continue to do this in the last next 72 years. Yeah. So about the health of Palestinian refugees, after 72 years, uh, the the main health problem is no more the death of the mother and children during the course of pregnancies, or that the infectious diseases like uh, diarrhea, pneumonia, this. After the lengthy of the refugee food, that the main health problem is that the non-communicable diseases, uh, usually that it contains uh, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular, and cancer, and the tobacco-related lung disease, and it also or usually includes uh, uh, mental health. And so that if you see the cause of death, it's, uh, it's probably 70 to 80% of the cause of death are non-communicable diseases. So that's the biggest health challenges. And the reason of this such a high t- percentage of non-communicable diseases, it's not like they go to McDonald's or something like Kentucky every day. It's simply they have no uh, health life choice, healthy life choice. The economy is so bad, and so that what they can eat is uh, 
usually government subsidize food to quite often it's bread and then some other things but the meat and the fruits and the well-balanced food is too expensive to avail and the tobacco is quite prevalent and so that they become more in the non-communicable diseases so that's the reality of the Palestinian refugees yeah. uh, I think Dr. Shida what our listeners might appreciate is if you could just give a brief description about what UNRWA does oh, for okay, Palestine sure. ah sorry yep so that the Palestinian refugees started in 1948 when that Israel was developed, established, and the people who used to live in the historical Palestine uh, left their home and uh, became refugees. And then that uh, in those days, probably around 700 to 800,000 people left the historical Palestine, and it happened in 1948. And then uh, 1949, United Nations at uh, that time has, uh, agreed to uh, develop a special agency to take care of the Palestinian refugees. So it started operating uh, in 1950 to providing, in those days, more life-saving critical care, uh, providing uh, shelters and the food and others. And then that uh, interestingly, uh, uh, somehow symbolically, that uh, the United Nations gave a mandate for the three years. And so that they started in 1950, so they probably supposed to hope in that uh, situation will be solved by 1953. But nothing happened, and it continued to do. And so as time goes by, that the UNRWA start providing more in the uh, continuity of services, which include uh, two large ones: the education schools. We we provide education services for the uh, children from grade one to nine. We have a 900, sorry, 700 schools in the five different uh, we called fields. We which is Gaza, West Bank in Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. With the 700 schools, the half million students from grade one to nine, that's the one largest uh, class uh, I mean, uh, services. The other one is a health, which I'm in charge, has 140 plus health centers. It's primary health care centers, not hospital, providing the comprehensive primary health care from maternal child health, uh, common walking clinic, and the diabetes. And uh, usually around the three million people use it services. We have around 10 million visitors every year. So these are the two major uh, services we provide to the 5.5 million Palestinian refugees. And then on top of it, we provide the food food support in Gaza and Syria, cash support in other places, as well as some other uh, sorry protection support and some others. Yep. Hmm. And then that the UNRWA is, uh, uh, so because of this uh, three years mandate that it, it does, it has all the, it's run all by the donations. Mm-hmm. In all the United Nations, they have what you call the assessed contributions, uh, sorry, technical term. What it meant by is that uh, all the con- member states of the United Nations give the quota to the, every year to the United Nations, and they, they, they redistribute the uh, money to the, the UN agencies. And so almost all the UN agencies like WHO, UN HR and WFP and all the others uh, have a uh, steady income from the uh, steady money budget from the United Nations headquarters. However, the UNRWA is uh, because of temporary nature of uh, three years Monday, we do not have the uh, United Nations assessed contribution. It's always almost it's always uh, uh, for donation from the member states who who really want to help UNRWA. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, so. I was I was in Palestine this summer. I worked mm. at a NICU in Jerusalem um, at Amakasid Hospital. Mm. Um, yeah, and I just I think it's uh, it's actually really extremely impressive um, all that UNRWA is doing health wise. Um, just in the like the level of of healthcare that's being provided to Palestinians. Um, I mean, well, there is is a long way to go. Um, 
just given given the way the political situation prevents developing a sustainable economy um, and a self-sustaining system, I think um, you guys should know that it's like it's really impressive how they. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was in a NICU and we're you know we're saving preemie babies that um, mm-hmm. like this is like a full like hospital situation and they um like they're doing really impressive heart surgeries and doing all kinds of things and the electronic medical record there is like way better than in the u.s even (laughs) like like epic is like convoluted and hard to use and like confusing and it's like not transferable between hospitals but like there any hospital you go to your records go like with you whichever hospital you need to go to and so like um yeah, it's it's really, really an honor to meet you, Doctor. No, no, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, just knowing, like, having seen firsthand all these, yeah. all these amazing. So, things. what brought you to Palestine? Why you want to go to the all the way down to Palestine? Um, yeah. So at first, it was just kind of like, I thought it, I thought it sounded cool. Um, I'm I'm religious, and so uh-huh. kind of the religious aspects of the area were were intriguing to me, and I thought that would be cool to visit. Um, and I knew I wanted to do global health work um but dr ocker came here last year and he, he was on this podcast um and I, I listened to him speak and i i just heard him speak about all these these injustices of these people who um who like and i now that i've met these people too who are some just very very incredible genuine wonderful people um who are who are trapped and um they don't they don't have rights places and they cannot move and just like hearing about it and then um I just I felt very very moved by that mm-hmm. injustice and um, mm. yeah I just I just feel very like deeply in me that that it's wrong what's happening but it's also it's it's fixable um, yeah. and so that's that's yeah that's no fine. it's true that the, the the despite of the difficulties they live in the way they treat you hospitality is fantastic <laughs> the way that the energy they have is truly great. And then that uh, West Bank, that if you happen to manage to go to Gaza, it's uh, it's uh, truly amazing. That under uh, such a difficult conditions, people are so wonderful and nice, mm. inspired, and it's a uh, fantastic people. But it's uh, at the same time, it's uh, truly sad to see that uh, they are living in the land where that the uh, future is somehow they disappearing. The mm-hmm. hope is disappearing, and then that uh, they, if you are better off people in the Palestine, the uh, first priority send their kids abroad. I think that's a reality happening now. I think that's also a very sad part of this. But any again, that uh, despite of this, I really appreciate, uh, admire them. If I were them, if I were born, 90, I was born in 1961, mm-hmm. and so that it, at that time it was uh, the sort of uh, West Bank was under Jordan, and then the Gaza was under Egypt. Control, mm-hmm. yeah. and then uh, after 1967, which I was uh, six years old, then that uh, West Bank was occupied by Israel. Same when the Gaza, and then since then situation continues. So I'm now 58. If I'm in West Bank, so the 51 years of my 58 years, I'm under occupation or the blockade. I think uh, that's a reality of the life. And then that if I were in the West Bank, I could go somewhere because that uh, the crossing uh, LMB is open, and mm-hmm. so I can 
goddess. And then, but in, if I were in Gaza, that then I may not be able to now go out. But the irony is that I'm getting older, so that I should be able to have get better permission to go out. But nevertheless, that that, that life is so complicated. And then I think uh, under such a situation, people still will continue to live and they maintain the society. I think this is truly amazing. Yeah. 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 yeah I was blown away by the hospitality and by like. Uh-huh. How like if I if I like thought about being hungry, there was suddenly like five different food options <laughs> for me, and and um, I was asked so much like welcome, like we are so happy for you to be here. It was just it was beautiful, and um, mm. yeah, I think one of the one of the hardest things that I encountered was so in in the NICU where I was, um, we had a lot of patients who were from Gaza. Um, and their their parents were not allowed to come visit them. So you'd have a situation where the mom delivers prematurely and she's allowed to come to the hospital to deliver the baby, but as soon as she's ready ready for discharge, uh, she's sent back to Gaza and is like is not allowed to come. And if, if you know about NICU medicine, that's like really bad for the baby to not be with the mom for a lot of reasons. Um, it's just like heartbreaking to see this, um, to like, watch these babies who are who are suffering because their mom like their their mom who loves them and it's like calling us every day several times a day like how is my baby how is my baby um like separated from them and then just like see how these people though are still such good people like they still just like care so much and they they say inshallah we will be free but they don't like there's just i'm just very amazed by the lack of hate um, that they have because mm. it would be very easy to grow up in this world and to, to hate um, these these people still somehow are are, are loving good people so mm. Mm. Uh, Dr. Sita can you talk a bit about how you got to where you are today uh, what's your journey from Japan to uh, <laughs> the UNRWA in yeah, Amman yeah. Jordan sure. if you could uh, elaborate on that I was before going to UNRWA, we call it UNRWA, UNRWA, and uh, I was uh, in the WHO staff. The, the WHO has uh, six regional offices in the world, one of which is called the Eastern Mediterranean, which is the Middle East and Northern Africa, including Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, 22 countries. And the regional office was in Cairo, and I was working there as a person in charge of tuberculosis and eventually AIDS and malaria. So this is what my job was doing this. And then in the, in the, Late twenty, late two thousand ten, my boss uh, simply asked me, "Can you go to UNRWA?" And I was wondering why me, because uh, I didn't ask, uh, because I was mm-hmm. doing uh, infectious control, and uh, I knew UNRWA a little bit, not in depth, but uh, I knew I visited a couple of health centers of UNRWA for my previous work, so I knew that they were all the primary health care, well established system, and the fantastically hardworking people. So I had a good impression, but I asked, I, I'm, uh, I was not uh, trained to run the primary health care, so that uh, I was wondering. But anyway, the eventually my boss asked me. So I said, fine, I go, and I have a very good impression of the UNRWA clinic and the stuff there. So it's good to work, uh, go and work and uh, people who does fantastic jobs. So that's uh, that I went. So it's not, uh, sorry to say that uh, I don't, I hope I'm not disappointing you, but it's not <laughs> to say like I was uh, totally committed to humanitarian, so I really wanted to go to UNRWA. It's just by part of that, you know, bureaucratic change of the transfer, mm-hmm. uh, transfer of the from here to there, and then I went there. But uh, it was really good. I, re- I still was telling to 
to my boss who asked me to go to UNRWA, and of course my first question is, why me? But nevertheless, he said, you should go. I said, fine. But I still tell him, whenever I met him, I still tell him, thank you so much for trusting me to send in there. And that's, mm. it's a fantastic, good job. Yeah? And can you talk a bit about uh, your your day to day job? Like, what do you do uh, okay. every day when you, so, when you are director sure. of health? Uh, in UNRWA, in health service wise, we have 140 plus clinics into the five places in the Gaza, West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. And then in each place, we have 20 to 30 clinics, and they end up 140, something like this. And they provide the primary health care. And then my job there is to make sure that they help them to run the health services that we plan to run. And then the more efficiently but more effectively and so that uh, like I had a uh, video conference uh, morning today which is uh, discussing about the budget for this year 2020 and we are in a financial crisis so that how to make sure that uh, we manage our service efficiently under the financial crisis that kind of things we mm-hmm. do and then that after that I had a no, it was four o'clock in the morning, as I said in the morning talk, because uh, I miscalculated the time difference. And <laughs> <laughs> I said yes, and then the idea is four o'clock in the morning. So I woke up three o'clock and I took shower. And after that, I had another one for, it's four to six, the, the first one, budget one, because budget one's tough. And then the say after half an hour, I had a bit of a Zoom conference for that. The, there's a humanitarian conference, International Humanitarian Congress conference in. Uh, in the Riyadh, uh, run by the King Salman uh, uh, Humanitarian Relief, and then there's a preparatory video conference uh, and a Zoom conference from so seven to seven thirty, seven forty. So the, my life is like you know the bureaucrats that every day we have a meetings relating to the very specific subject, and then that uh, discussing that, and then we are in the middle of that uh, medicine delivery to the 2020. We ordered last October. And now that they are supposed to reach to the, all the countries, all the five, four, five fields, that's monitoring, that's another job. That also I had a telephone talk this morning. That it's, inter- it's a global world, so it's interesting. Say like, uh, I don't know in the United States, but in many parts of the world that medicines are coming from India. And then that quite often raw materials, API, uh, is coming from China. And in our case, that uh, India is so far okay, but we are buying an insulin syringe from in, uh, China. Quite a big chunk because we have 200,000 people with diabetes and hypertension. Mm. And then that it stopped. It's because of coronavirus. Mm. What's happened is that the factory inside the China is ready to ship, but the roads to the port is closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, yeah. Because of this coronavirus issue. It's a government issue. I, I respect this. But so we're wondering what to do because Syria is running out of the needle and syringes so that they have to go to local procurement or the helping each other, that, that kind of thing. So my job in short is to help the fields to continue to provide the services. That's my day. So this discussion with the budget, the policies, or the more in the day-to-day things, the fire fighting or the setting of a policy that that kind of things yeah uh, that's daily job yeah mm. it's really impressive how much you've accomplished by 8 a.m. when i was just making my coffee oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. um one of the best analogies that i've heard to describe the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is that it's like two people trying to decide how to divide a pizza when one person has already started eating it. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what you think of that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really probably a good analogy, and uh, it's so complex. 
it's really complex and then that it's historically politically and globally and then that uh, at this point of time that uh, uh, Palestinians are not in an equal seat with the other side, unfortunately. And uh, one reason is that the other side is quite strong, politically and economically, that's one part. And the second part is that the Palestinian side has an internal political problem. That's also a fact. And also because of the geopolitics in the Middle East, that in the past, that the Palestinian cause is the center for the Middle East. That's quite sure, because everybody give importance. And some people still give importance to Palestine issues. But as a matter of fact, many countries in the Middle East has its own problem. And the geopolitical issues, the Gulf and the Iran and the, all the all, many issues. And so that the, the political importance of Palestine is not as strong as in the past. That makes our uh, the life of Palestinians much more complicated. And so within this con- con- context that uh, uh, the future is very uh, complicated and not uh, easy at all. Uh, but my job is not to solve, bring the political solutions. The UNRWA is mandated to provide the services until the political solutions comes in. So our job is to continue, make sure that we continue to provide the services that Palestine refugees need until the just and last solution come. Mm-hmm. And then the people become ha- happy. How it ends, it's up to the politics to uh, decide. It's not us to decide. What, and, but uh, whatever this, until that time, my job is to make sure that we provide the uh, services uh, they need. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could describe how um, the current events in the past two years have affected the work which UNRWA has been doing, such as the war in Syria and um, other protests happening in Lebanon, and uh, the funding cuts that took place in 2018, etc., etc. Yeah, I think uh, affected uh, list work? is very long. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. So Syria uh, uh, war is. Uh, it has affected Palestinian refugees a lot. Mm. Uh, we have around uh, ha, ha, 500 to 600 Palestinian, 600,000 Palestinian refugees in Syria. And then the, historically, they are treated very well by the government of Syria. They have equal rights with the uh, Syrians, except for the voting and the military services. And then the rest that they could have gone to the Syrian government schools, universities, uh, hospitals, uh, like Syrian did. And but this. Uh, uh, this is uh, this uh, structure is uh, somehow disappeared because of the war and mm. this, and so that uh, out of six hundred thousand Palestinian refugees in Syria, probably hundred thousand left the country. Wow. Uh, and then the, uh, some of them went to Europe, as you have seen the news. And at, at this point of time, around thirty to thirty-five thousand in, in, in Lebanon. Uh, 15 to 20,000 and Jordan. They, so if they come to Jordan or Syria, Lebanon, then we have UNRWA services, so they can avail. They, if they show that the UNRWA registration card, they can get our schools and the uh, health clinics there. Mm-hmm. So, But it's not easy. Uh, because that uh, there are t- a couple of places in the southern part of uh, Damascus, which is called Yarmouk and the Palestine refugee camp, accounts majority of the Palestine refugees in Syria. So that uh, since these uh, places are affected by the war, 
many Palestinian refugees left that area and went to Damascus and other places. Mm. And then that is a major issue for Palestinian refugees because they have to find a residence. At the beginning, they went to the schools. Our school became a shelter for many Palestinian refugees. And they stayed there in the small group, small room of the classrooms that partition with a blanket or plastic seal. Then they, they live there. And then there's no more, it's, it's, it's gone. And they start moving out to the uh, apartment uh, or the flats to rent. But that's also the problem because it's quite costly and mm. the economy is quite uh, largely affected. And so that uh, I saw many staff who, uh, who left the Yarumuko Palestine refugee camp, went into the inside of Damascus and have to change the flats every now and then uh, because of this one. So that's a very difficult one. The current Lebanese crisis is still ongoing. Mm. It's very difficult to see how it goes, where it goes. But it has a financial issue. Say, for example, that uh, our staff uh, uh, they could not uh, withdraw their salary from the ATM machine because of the financial crisis there. We managed to make sure that they receive salary in dollars. That's okay because we, we budget everything in dollars, so paying dollars is not a problem. And the government uh, helped us to establish and bank helped us to establish a specific ATM machine for the UNRWA stuff, so they we can withdraw five hundred dollars. Uh, a day, a week or something, I, I think a day. And then that uh, that's good. Uh, but uh, so what I heard is that uh, is, uh, some people went to the ATM machine at 11.59 the midnight and we drew $500. And at 12.01, they we draw another $500. <laughs> and that this is for the house rent to pay, so something like that. So it's, it's a really very difficult situation. Mm. And then so uh, that's uh, once. And then so, uh, we had uh, in Gaza, the last war was 2014, so it's a little bit before, but uh, still that uh, that has a huge impact. During that 2014 war, we have around 1.2 million Palestinian refugees in Gaza in that days. And the 300,000 people left the home and they came to UNRWA schools, uh, 90 plus UNRWA schools to, as a shelter. So 300,000 is uh, probably larger than the Iowa City, I guess. I don't know the population of Iowa City. I think the total population when all the students are in town is 75,000, something yeah, like yeah, this. So, mm -hmm. And so, then half of them leave and then it's just 30,000. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, th uh, sorry, 300,000. So 300,000 people left uh, the houses and came to the UNRWA shelter. So it's a quite large ones. Mm -hmm. And they return back, but uh, still they have uh, difficulties. Uh, and so life in the Palestine refugees are extraordinarily difficult and getting more and difficult because of Geopolitics is not uh, favorable to them, conducive them to develop uh, their lives. Yeah? So you're you're constantly in the crosshairs of multiple uh, political problems, geopolitical problems, wars, um, and here you are. You're still operating to provide basic rights like education, mm -hmm. healthcare to Palestinian refugees, um, and you are working under a mandate. That's what it is given. But is it, is it possible to maintain? neutrality in these situations, particularly with, for example, with the Israeli government, how how do you operate, you know, within the West Bank or Gaza in trying to transport people for the purpose of treatment or health care and, and not be perceived as um, as a threat or as, as a matter of being on the other side by the Israeli government? Can you elaborate on your experiences with yeah, that? I think neutrality is very important because that, that we, we respect and follow neutrality to provide the services. We are human beings, and you know, we have, a, say, like UNRWA has a 700 schools and 140 plus clinics, so we have 32,000 staff. 
It's quite a big uh, uh, public public government or de facto government. And then out of 32,000, almost all of them Palestinian refugees, almost all of them. So they can never be the feeling that they're you know, neutral in the feeling because mm-hmm. they do have, a, they, they, they live there and they know that their original home is there and they, they live in the refugee status since, since they're born and many of them are still refugees. I mean, uh, many of them were born in the refugee camps in the past, something like this. So they do, they do have a strong opinion, strong feeling of the status. But uh, our job is to provide the health services. And then that, uh, to make sure that the provide the health services, we, we make sure that we do not make, uh, we, we make sure, to make sure the politi- uh, health service is continuing, we, we make sure that we do not make unnecessary issues. And then so that, yes, if we see, they say, like, uh, we have uh, so many issues, like uh, uh, people who want to go to the Makassar hospital from mm-hmm. Gaza, they, they, they need to get the permission. Yeah. And the, the permission, the approval rate is 50, 60% maximum. So half or only half of them can go on mm-hmm. appointed days. And that's a life and death issue. And we, we strongly have a strong opinion. And also during the course of the war that, you know, we, our health center was affected by the bombing. They didn't target our health center, but the nearby health centers was shelled, I mean, affected. So that kind of things. And also our staff uh, have a difficulty in moving uh, in and out in the West Bank because of the permission and other things. We do have a, such a feeling. However, our job is to make sure provide the services. And so that to, what is the best way to provide the services is always our priority. And then that uh, we do not make uh, lots of uh, political noise. We don't need to make uh, political noise unnecessarily if it affects the continuity of the services. One very typical example in the humanitarian world is ICRC, International uh, Red Crescent uh, and the Red, Red Crescent Cross. And Red Cross. Yeah, they they visit. One of their job is to visit the uh, prisons in the country where they visit. And then that, of course, that they do not always see favorable situation for the prisoners. It's sometimes un- totally unacceptable, favor- unfavorable situations. But there's always debate that either they have to report this to the world, report this to the external, to tell that this prison condition is uh, unacceptably bad or not. And they quite often keep quiet, not quiet, but keep priority the neutrality. Because if they uh, indicate to the world that you know, this situation is not acceptable, they may not be able to go back to the prison to provide the services to the prisoners. And so that they give priority to this. I think that's uh, one I, that's an example I really appreciate that how important neutrality is. Because uh, end of the day, the last thing I want is to stop our services. So that the provider service is more important. But at the same time that you know we, we, we will give evidence that how the political environment affects the health, that, that's an important part of the research. How that the political environment may affect the, uh, affect the health of the people in the Palestine and the Palestinian refugees. And that uh, research could speak by itself of the situation. I also want to ask, I mean, this is... Um you know, there, there have been attacks leveled against uh, UNRWA specifically by, like, the Israeli government. I mean, Netanyahu has made remarks about uh, the fact that the UNRWA shouldn't exist because it serves as a um, continuation of the the Palestinian problem. Trump and Kushner have also, I think, made—I don't think Trump made a statement. Maybe Kushner has made a statement about uh, the organization as well. So uh, how is it—I mean, does, do those statements— 
affect your your day-to-day job do those statements you know put you in a feeling that your organization's under threat and could collapse in um very quickly or or are you, is there just is this just a matter of fact that you're just going to have to deal with the attacks and criticisms leveled against the the organization um and also do you, is there support for the organization within Israel itself or um you know is is this something that's create you know, that is a uh, has divided opinions amongst israelis that you notice i think that what you said at the beginning is a very important political change in the palestine and the neighboring countries and it's important for us to understand that uh, how this could affect our services that we we do we did uh, this, we discuss internally and how we can affect the services and uh, the only uh, the, uh, the only direction is how how we can best continue our services under the current political environment that's the most important part and then uh, we are fully aware that uh, the difference of opportunity we quite often criticize because of refugee food because of this our services at the same time that uh, as a matter of fact what we are doing is that what the United nations general assembly ask us to do mm-hmm. so that it is not to say like one single country or one state to say that what we should do or not should do as far as the united nations general assembly tell us what to do as a mandated that's the job we're going to do mm-hmm. but at, at the same time as i said at the beginning that we do read the politics we do under try to understand the politics and so that we can maintain the service at the best way yeah? And then for the uh, support to uh, UNRWA, or let me translate it, support to Palestinians in Israel. There are uh, groups of the people that uh, who wants to help Palestinians, including Palestinian refugees, and then the Israeli side. I think, uh, you know, this is uh, quite natural to me that see that if anyone from the other side of the border or whatever that is suffering unnecessarily, I think some people really want to help. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask um, if there were any lessons that we can take away as Americans um, that we could use to improve our healthcare system um, based on the mm-hmm. kind of incredible success given the um, limited access to resources and the problems that you mentioned. Um, it's pretty amazing what the what the ENRA has been able to accomplish. What are some lessons that we can take from that for our healthcare system? What, what I learned most in UNRWA is that the two things. One is that uh, uh, we need to have a healthy society to healthy life or health. I think that's important. What you have seen in the Makassar, what you have seen in the, uh, Jerusalem is a clear example that the people become ill health. So it's not simply because of the um, genetic or something like the medical reasons. People uh, become ill health that uh, because of this uh, geopolitical environment and the society at large. Say like uh, if I think mothers who cannot accompany the kids in the Makassar hospital mm-hmm. has uh, is not healthy too me if mm. i were the mom yeah i think i think they cry yeah the mothers are very like it is like hard to, to talk to like they're they're very broken mm. over it and, and as as i think any any mother could imagine being being separated from your child yeah. Yeah, so that uh, social inequality or other things or whatever you said, I think it's uh, one thing that w- what I learned most is that uh, society, ill health of the society brings the ill health to the individual in mm-hmm. there. I think that's important part. Uh, second part is that uh, the, when we work in the refugees, which is usually the most vulnerable 
weak, weaker part of the society, or if not the weakest part of the society. Yeah? And then when you see the Palestinian refugees, that or the weakest part of the society, I could see the, all the problems in Palestine. What do you want to say? What I want to say is that all the problems of society tends to accumulate to the weakest part of the people. And so if you see the most vulnerable people, you can see what the society may look like. Mm-hmm. Of course, you cannot generalize because it doesn't happen to everybody to accumulate. Mm-hmm. So I think these are the things that uh, probably that uh, you may uh, fascinate, you may be so excited to come and see how the people's life is there. And uh, it's probably the same in the U.S., uh, I mean, uh, the poorest of the poor is probably the uh, most unhealthy society. And then poorest of poor, if you see the poorest of poor, that uh, you may see the, uh, uh, say, Ohio State. May, what are the problem Ohio State has is probably accumulating them. And I think that's uh, one, one good thing is this. I think uh, that, that's uh, the more important, most uh, quite interesting part. And then uh, as a medical student, right? which year you are? Uh, I'm actually a sixth-year student, so I did the first year and a half of medical school, uh-huh. and now I'm in my fourth year of my PhD. Ah, okay. And then once I defend, I'll go back to medical school. For the, another two more years. Yep, that's so right. So eight years. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm uh, 80% of the way there. So. Ah, excellent, excellent. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I think uh, it's uh, I think uh, what I learned in Palestine is that the importance of non-health determinants on health, and I think that's very important. Say like when I was in medical school, that uh, I thought that uh, we read a phy- physiology or anatomy or pathology and this kind of how the people become ill health. But actually, that and it's important that there's that kind of physical condition of the health. But at the same time that. Uh, majority of the people become ill health not because of physical conditions, because of their life. I think that part is a very important and I think interesting part. And then that if I go a little bit beyond this, that if many of them become ill health because of the ill politics. And I think that's important, uh, very interesting subject to discuss and learn. Say like how the politics are important to make people healthy. Mm-hmm. In this country, the health insurance, famous discussion on health insurance, I think it's a political issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my country, is that the political issue is how to take care of the elderly, because uh, Japanese society becomes much more old, and how we can we have less children to take mm-hmm. care of the older people. So how country can run the health care for the elderly people? Because in Japan, the universal insurance is a must. Mm-hmm. So within that com- uh, context, how we can take care of the elderly is another issue. And uh, so I think it's uh, imp- interesting to see. If you are interested in social medicine, I think that's uh, uh, quite good to, for the United States to somehow come and see in the, uh, the refugees' status. And uh, one last thing is that the uh, Palestine issue is so complex. And whatever I say that you, you may not realize how complex unless you come and see. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very difficult, huh? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, like, it's almost like everything is just magnified there. And like talking about social determinants of health, it's like just given the, the political environment, it's just like everything is a bigger deal in it. Yeah, it's... 
yeah. just just go and see. I'd, I'd echo that. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> so if I were the U, if I were the medical student in the U.S., uh, one thing I would like to go is uh, visit the poorest of the poor people and ask questions how they live. And I think that will probably give me lots more interesting stories of this country, mm-hmm. because I have a lots of friends uh, in the social uh, health workers, social mm-hmm. workers, and then they told me lots of stories how they see that the poorest or poor Japanese society looks like. And it tells me that how Japan may go, which direction Japan may go in the future. I think that's also interesting part. Yeah? I could not agree more um, about the point that you were making that, you know, they're uh, not officially American refugees in our country because there's we've never fought a war on our own soil except the Civil War and the Revolutionary War. Um, but demographically and economically, there is a considerable population living under similar conditions, um, not having regular access to food, um, not having, um, you know, sustainable long term shelter. Um, I th- think too the point that you made uh, about social um, the social effect uh, on people's health that a lot of disease we're finding out doesn't arise organically from uh, you know biological circumstances but it's really people responding to their environment and if you want to change people's health and improvement you have to work on their environment so. oh, I fully agree yeah would you would you talk more about that about the the way the um, political environment creates trauma uh, for Palestinians in some of the concrete ways that that's playing out for health outcomes? Yeah. Say, for example, uh, the worst case is always a war. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the worst of the worst. I share a couple of stories I heard during the war. Um, the in the historically that the Palestinians or Palestinian refugees in Gaza become wealthy, there are two ways historically in the past. Mm-hmm. They went to the Gulf, like UAE, United Arab Emirates, or Saudi, worked there, and then they brought the wealth money back to the country. Mm-hmm. Or in old days that they went to Israel, work in the whatever the job opportunity they have, including doctors work in the hospital, and they brought money back to this. And uh, during the Gaza War 2014, that uh, there is a, sh- uh, 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 what they call rockets or shooting in the mm-hmm. building. So some of the buildings destroyed because of, as a cause of the war, uh, instantly. And he told me that uh, his, I visited one of my friend's house and he said that uh, he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then that he, he th- his house was okay and he was uh, intact till the end of the one. Historically, what uh, quite often they do is they build the first, uh, first, uh, first ground floor, first floor, second floor, and whenever money comes in, going up, 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 and they end mm-hmm. the seventh floor. And his uh, apartment has, has a seventh floor, and the, his immediate family is the first, second floor, and then the relative, and, and that, that's a very typical way. And so that for him, that uh, uh, is a, it's a sort of a symbol of his uh, consequence or achievement of his life. And he told me that, uh, what if my house was destroyed in the five seconds of the bombardment? Mm. So my entire, he was 61, just about to retire. He said, my 61 years of heavy work, could be destroyed in uh, five seconds of bombing. 
I think that's、uh, then how you can maintain the sir, my dignity and then my life. I think that's also important.、Uh, and then that the other one is that、uh, during the course of the war, when the ceasefire took place, I went and got there twice.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, primarily to say thanks to the staff who are working there, continue to work there, but also see the situation, particularly shelters. We have、uh, 300,000 people in the shelters,、uh, which are schools, and to make sure that there's no sort Outbreaks of the diarrhea or the、uh, infectious diseases, and also their mental health is okay. And we recruited the counselors and we, we posted the health point in each one of the 90 shelters. And、uh, I met with、uh, one of the extended family, and、uh, in Gaza, extended family is very big, they,、uh, it's uh, 100. So they occupy two rooms in the extended family.、Yeah. <laughs> and by chance, I met the head of the extended family and I asked him how's this. And he said how he ran away. He ran away from his home during the bombardment, all these k i n d of things. And then that,、uh, I say, he explained to me. And then that, uh, uh, what the, I asked him, what do you want? And、uh, yeah, I want to go back to home. And、uh, like ordinary conversation with、uh, my friend、uh, who is the head of the health of UNRWA in Gaza translating. And at the end, I asked him that,、uh, how's the, what do you want in the future in reality? And then, that,、uh, then my, my friend、uh, translated to him. They asked him, and he responded immediately the, 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 she, the head of the extended family. And my friend didn't translate and tell me. And I asked him, tell me what he said. And、uh, after a couple of seconds, he said that he said, I want my dignity back. And the reason I asked, and after that, he told me that you know, the answer he got,、uh, my, I want my dignity back, is exactly what he had in his mind. So he couldn't immediately translate, he, he was totally moved, so, like, something like this. So, under such a situation, that how people can maintain the life, I think there are a number of reasons, a number of stories, same like in Syria, same like everywhere. I think、uh, that's、uh, the heartbreaking ones, and I think、uh, that's how difficult Palestine refugee is. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Would you give some insights into、um, the, the experience that you've had in? Being a physician and being able to be part of a team of physicians in a very low resource environment, which is full of extreme levels of trauma and、um, of great challenges that you've had, what would you say to、um, some of the listeners who are either pre medical students or medical students who might be pursuing a career down this track where they'd want to serve in a global health scenario?、Um, what have been some, some key lessons for you in being able to persevere? Through those environments and challenges? Sure. I think、uh, the most important thing I always think is what I really want to do. I、mm. think that, that's, uh, that's uh, finally that, that's,、uh, that's everything. So that we need to find out what I really want to do. If anyone wants to work in a global health, I think the important thing is what he she wants to do. Let me share my story. Say, I was doing tuberculosis in WHO, in the regional office. And then,、uh, as I said, my boss wants me to go to UNRWA. So I said, fine. I went. And when I went to UNRWA, That there's a, a quasi government providing primary care for the 5.5 million people. So I, I really don't know what to do, to be honest. No. And then that the first thing I did is that, okay, I have to do something. And so,、hmm, what should I do? And then I said, okay, I have nothing to do. So I, I visit all the 144 health centers. <laughs> That's what I first decided. And then that,、uh, well, first Data I think, gathering, basically.、Uh, huh? And just data gathering to see what no, the situation is. No, no, it's、is. not data gathering. It's、uh, meeting and、uh, visiting the people to understand how they. 
how they live mm. and how they provide the services. Uh, and then that it's uh, important uh, two thing ways. Uh, one is that understand the staff, how, how they live. Say like uh, in the government setting that it's important to know that how the staff life is. Say like how many kids they have, how they manage to send their kids to the universities, how they, uh, that's important to know because that uh, otherwise they will not continue to work, right? And then say also the beneficiaries, uh, what kind of life they have. Say like uh, uh, are they working or not working or big house, small house, how many families, all these kind of things. And so I, I and uh, so I, I started visiting all the health centers. I made a plan. It, it, it literally takes one year to visit 144 health centers in five different locations. And also it was good that, you know, if I visiting health centers, it look, looks like I'm doing something. <laughs> 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 if people ask what Seta is doing, you know, he's visiting health centers as if I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> I just visit. At the, at the beginning, my, my, my colleague, the senior colleague, uh, accompanied me. But uh, after one month, he said, you go alone. I haven't. Okay. So I started visiting this. And then that... Um, after the middle of the year, but it was really good to visit, to understand the life of the people, life mm. of the staff. I think that gives me very clear understanding what uh, UNRWA looks like and Pakistan refugee looks like. And after the half a year, my boss said that, you know, said that you have to do reform, which is uh, reform is, I said, like education started reform, but the reform in the real world is like, it's not like I give you more money so you improve your services. Reform in the real world, I don't give you money, but you have you have to improve your service, <laughs> or uh, I give you less money, but you produce same results. Uh, that's a reform <laughs> in the real world. <laughs> and I said, okay. And then I said yes. And then that you know, uh, what I did is first thing is that, uh, of course, I, I wonder what to do. But the first thing is to is to define what is the problem for Palestinian refugees. What is the most important health problem for Palestinian refugees, and then try to address it. Because in my previous life of the uh, infectious diseases or public health tells me that uh, it's impossible to address all the problems, mm -hmm. and so that in in the global health, whatever the public health is, identify the most important problem, addressing that problem, then that the secondary important, tertiary important, uh, maybe easier to address or they may simply disappear if you address the deep problem. And the deep problem for Palestinian refugees is non-communicable disease, diabetes, hypertension, that kills, as I said, 70-80% of Palestinian refugees. So I said, okay, we have to do Palestinian refugees for the non-communicable disease. And then the then next question is that then what to do? And then I have only the uh, clinics, 144 clinics. And then, then I ask many people, what I can do in the NCD and the clinics? And everybody told me that you have to do family medicine. Oh, okay. And I had no idea what the family medicine was. So I Googled a lot, <laughs> <laughs> like what you do. And then that I found that the family health team in Ontario, Toronto. Uh, and then uh, by chance I was going to Canada because uh, if you know that there's a very famous book that I shall not hate. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really it's a, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. He was UNRWA stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked in the UNRWA, but he was also in Israel, work in Israel. Mm -hmm. And then uh, he was uh, once in Tabrecho, uh, in Afghanistan. So I knew him. Oh, really? oh, uh, wow. yeah, yeah. And then that, uh, so when the President Obama referred to him in his speech, you know, he was, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, people in Gaza who killed, uh, who lost his uh, three 
daughters during the war still say that I shall not hate. And this is what uh, mm. President Obama said. And then the, the, when I saw the news, uh, the face looks familiar to me. I said, oh, I, I think I know him. And I, I another Googled. <laughs> <laughs> and I found him, he's in Toronto. So I sent a message, email. So, Do you remember me? And he said, yes, I remember you. And uh, then I said that, uh, that he asked me to come to Toronto because he's Palestinian refugees. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, then on, went to Toronto and he showed me all the family health teams in Toronto. And I said, ah, this is the way we should go. And so that I uh, identified the, the most important problem, I identified the most effective way to end. And after that, uh, start discussing how we can do this. And so I think that that's... Uh, uh, the very good way in the global health because that the problem is uh, limitless and then that uh, our intervention is limited mm. and so that the important things to address is that uh, what is the problem or how we can address this and then build a case on this one I think uh, that's uh, the way probably it's important for me that's what I learned most in the how we could be effective in the uh, global health and the in this context, the important thing is that uh, what I want. Mm. If you ask me that uh, why you why I work, I work. I always said I work for myself, and it's not like uh, I work myself. I work by I work uh, to make myself happy. It's not the selfish uh, mm-hmm. type of things. Mm-hmm. I say like in this case that uh, for me that the important thing is to address a non-communicable disease. Important thing is to do the family medicine. If this is, becomes my my objective. So if I make my happy, probably that's the best way to go. Mm. I think that's also important part. The other important part is read the politics in the global health, which people don't usually do. Say like when we start this reform of family health and the non-communicable disease, and then and then that and the, the visiting many health centers helped me a lot. And in the health centers, what I realized that nobody is happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the uh, refugees are not happy. Because uh, in the past in UNRWA that they say that we introduce reform and they cut the services. Mm. Uh, reform is quite often to use an excuse to cut the service because of financially in trouble. It's not like a lack of money in, uh, per se. It's more in the refugee continue to increase. So comparatively, we have less money and they cut the service. And the refugees are not happy and the health staff are now also not happy because they are basically uh, refugees and they see the service reduction. And the countries that uh, acco- uh, that accommodate refugees like Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, we call it host countries, they're also not happy because UNRWA is cutting the services. And then uh, donors who gave us money were also not happy uh, <laughs> because they always say, you, you always ask money, you don't do anything reform. Mm. So, so that uh, then that I say, what, what we can do? And then uh, immediately, everybody understands it's impossible to make all of them happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no such a magic bullet in the world. So I say that uh, after discussing people that, okay, let's make a refugee happy. If a refugee is happy, staff is okay, and the host is okay, and the donor could give us money. And then so make this one, and they simplify the approach. And then that in the global health, I think, as I said, uh, the problem is important. The other way it's important is simplify the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I don't know your PhD is epidemiology or whatever, economics or... Uh, in immunology. Okay. Yeah. If you, I'm sure you study epidemiology. Yep. Yeah. We, I think we all take some classes yeah, yeah. for exposure. They tend to put uh, all the world into two by two table, right? Yep. 
<laughs> yeah. uh, I think uh, that's the beauty. How simplify the so complex world into the very simplified ones? I think if, if in the public health, it's very important to simplify. It's not a, you know forgetting the uh, important things uh, to take the everything into the very important part. I think that also so uh, to make in in this way that you know simplify the politics and simplify the intervention, the message simplified. Then we may be able to make a difference. That's what I learned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's incredible that you got to meet uh, Dr. Abudiesh. Um, yeah. <laughs> if for, the, for the listeners that haven't heard of him, you should check out the book, I Shall Not Hate. It's a, quite an incredible story. And uh, I'm quite sure he will come because it's not far from here. Yeah, maybe we should. I was, was yeah. going to ask him, Dave. Hey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found yeah. his email on the internet. So yeah, you can refer to my name. You heard of you from Satan. Huh? All right. Yeah, 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 I'm gonna do it. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna email him. Yeah. We get to name drop you like you're our friend. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, he 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 is a great talker. Yeah. He's yeah, great incredible. Talker. Incredible journey. Um, mm. and and I, I want to ask you about the problem of non-communicable diseases. Mm. I mean, your past work was in tuberculosis and with infectious disease. And that's a lot more tangible in terms of standardizing protocols, treatments, observations. Uh, how are you gonna, or how have you been um, addressing the problem of non-communicable diseases? Are you using your background in infectious disease to sort of come in and sort of start to standardize the approach to monitoring and treatment for NCDs? Or, and what have been some of the, the struggles in doing so? And also if you could talk about um, if it, if the use of the electronic health records that you guys implemented has been helpful in monitoring for you guys to monitor the diseases, but also for the patients, has that had a sort of an effect on them in terms of, you know, they keep track of their, their weights, yeah. they can do their own self-assessments. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let me start with my previous life in the tuberculosis. Uh, when I joined tuberculosis at your age, that uh, all the tuberculosis experts say that each single patient are different. And then we should tailor the treatment for each single patient, change the combination of medicines and also the duration of the treatment. And they, no they, standardization. No, no, I mean, they are totally against standardization, truly. Mm-hmm. And then that I, because my, at that time my boss said, so I said, oh, okay. But once, so that my first assignment was in Yemen, 1990 the very peaceful mm-hmm. Yemen. Mm-hmm. And then that, that, that day is that uh, we did uh, the Japanese tuberculosis control. And the other places that uh, supporting Netherlands does uh, Netherlands TB control, uh, uh, Italian TB control, American TB control. The point was that you know, there's no standardization, so, so we can't compare in reality. I always say the mind's best, but uh, there's nothing to compare. And so I think uh, then once the WHO established a global uh, TB strategy at that time called DOT, Direct Observation Treatment, mm-hmm. then things, the world completely changed. And uh, that's uh, my fortune that I see that before and after the introduction of the global TB strategy. Mm-hmm. And what changes is that uh, basically that uh, people's minds change, if I put it so simple. What it meant by is that uh, people start talking the same language, Mm-hmm. Same diagnosis, uh, same treatment, same outcome, uh, starting the everything. And uh, all the countries uh, can be put in the two-by-two two table. Boom. Uh, and they, they very simplify the indicators. 
is which is uh, how many of the existing patient in the community we found we call it case detection rate and how many of them cured it's a cure rate mm-hmm. so like like this it moved a lot and it also moved the light uh, life of that uh, people at the front line because that uh, in, for many front line people that uh, it is not their job to find out how to diagnose and treat TB. Right. There should be somebody. They should be taught how to do this diagnosis in TV. But they are extraordinarily good how to make this happen in the local mm. setting, and uh, that moved people a lot. And then that uh, we set the indicators in a, a more structured way, a little bit the cheating way, which is to say that uh, all the indicators should have the sort of right uh, upwards uh, move. And then the first thing what they did is that uh, introduce a dots population coverage. It's a cheating indicator. So if you have one, two health centers, if you introduce the dots, you can you cover the entire population. Life is not like this, but if you mm-hmm. put two indicators, so if you do this uh, something today, tomorrow my indicator is better. Mm-hmm. And the first thing is a dots indication uh, population coverage. Second is number of TB patients they found. It also increased, whatever, the, uh, as, as far as we put the new centers. And then that the third thing is that the cure rate increased, so, something like this. So this moved the pay people. So that's what I learned. And then, so then when I came to the non-communicable disease world, when I joined UNRWA, it is, uh, for me, that it's before dot, dot TB, exactly the same. All the people say that uh, each patient is different, mm-hmm. each intervention is different. There's no way to standardize this. There's no way to monitor this. Uh, and then that uh, I think that helped me to somehow in, uh, put uh, my thought into the non-communicable diseases. Um, there's, and then that, uh, then that say like standardized treatment, standardized monitoring, and also that uh, put into the monitoring system like like a, uh, say like in many settings in those days that uh, they know how many diabetes patients they have, but there's no data how many of them come into the clinics regularly and how many of them are controlled. Uh, that kind of data was not there. But the, for me, that is the most important data. So to simplify this uh, intervention, simplify the indicators, put this, I think that's worked very well. But uh, I think that is not the coincidence. Uh, when I joined the uh, global health, uh, in, in my day, it, it was called international health. The people who run the international health was ex-leaders uh, uh, of the smallpox eradication. Mm-hmm. You, you know, D. Henderson, who was American, and uh, these are the people who, that's the biggest achievement of public health, eradicating smallpox. And after that, it's followed by the EPI, Extended Program Immunizations. The, the point is that uh, they, know, they know how to run the services. Uh, the, the program cycle is all, uh, complete, and then that, uh, they know the standardization's importance. They know everywhere. And then that uh, now after that to me TB, I, I'm, it's not me, mm-hmm. but if you if I tell you Jim Kim, you know Jim Kim who was the ex president of the World Bank, American, oh, yeah, yeah. Jim Young Kim, Jim Kim, who was doing TB tuberculosis. He was in uh, one of the, with the Paul Farmer. I'm sure you know Paul Farmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, both of them started partnering health yeah. in Boston, and then they started the uh, tuberculosis. They are the pioneer for that or activists for the multi drug resistance of tuberculosis care. Jim Kim, uh, Tom Frieden, director of the ex-previous director of the CDC. Mm. Uh, 
he is also he was a WHO TV officer in India, so I know him well. Mm-hmm. Oh. And then so there are many people who run TV is now leading global health. I think the the essence that who do, who does experience that kind of how to run the services can co- incorporate with the services to the others. Say like as I said, in non-communicable disease, major problems the commodity are so expensive. Mm-hmm. It was same for the TB and the HIV in the past. Anti-retroviral uh, medicines or anti-TBNs are so expensive. And then with the help of the global fund, they established a global procurement system and the price went down drastically. Mm-hmm. And it was accessible to the rest of the world. I think that kind of things happen. So, for the, so non-communicable disease is complex and long-standing, uh, but uh, nevertheless, that, you know, the essence is there. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I, I find it really amazing how um, all of the individuals you're describing, including yourself, found a way to um, like pull a model from how you address TB and use that same model to address a completely different mm-hmm. category of disease. It sounds to me like the most critical part is establishing a surveillance system, um, sort of educating people on how to recognize the symptoms and like standardizing the symptoms. And then um, the other point that I thought that was really nice that you made is um, the interrelatedness of health all over the world. I think as Americans, we're also starting to realize how much our health depends on events outside of the world. For example, um, when Puerto Rico was hit with a hurricane a couple of years ago, um, I didn't realize that Puerto Rico is a top producer of saline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really uh, created a bit of a crisis in the mainland US where we didn't have access to saline, which we use all of the time. Um, so, yeah, thank you for those really good points. I'm just piggybacking on your great oh. thoughts and oh. trying to make no, myself no. seem smart. <laughs> <laughs> no, you are very smart, that's for uh, sure. Thank you. That's for sure. Oh. So in the U.S., that you go to the Ph.D. in the middle of the medical school? Um, it's a, a little different um, oh. in different places. Uh, Every some schools will have you uh, do medical school first, and then the PhD. Some people in reverse. Um, at Iowa, we've had our program uh, since the '70s, and it's one of the longest-running program. And they've sort of worked it out over the years that this seems to work best. Um, first, we do our classroom portion of med school, and then go to grad school, finish that, and then come back and do the practical part. Mm-hmm. So it is long, eight years, and there's different ways to cut it. But yeah. You don't forget the medicine during the PhD? Totally. <laughs> but don't tell my bosses. Uh, that's, that's our little secret. No, we uh, we find ways to stay sharp, and uh, they actually have us shadow kind of throughout our PhD, oh. so we stay fresh. But uh, I think it comes back f- pretty quickly, ah, yeah, if sure. you learned it properly the first time, which I hope I did. Yeah. So. Well, that is our show. Uh, thank you, Dr. Seda, for talking with us today about your work uh, at the UN Uh, Relief and Works Agency. It's been really nice having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you also, Aline, Abby, Sama, Joel, for being co-hosts today. For being hosts today, since I wasn't here very much. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, of course, Short Codes, for making us a part of your week. If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and wherever else fine podcasts are available. I remind you that your questions are vital to the show because they mean it can be what you want it to be about. Send questions and comments to theshortcoats at gmail.com or you can leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT and we'll talk about it on the show. While your podcast app is open, give us some more stars and a review to let us know if we're doing right by you. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our opening music 
music is by Dr. Vox, and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. Music